I want to share with you something that's precious tonight. And it's precious simply because it's the Word of God. The Word of God tells us that our Father is not really angry with the sinner. He is angry with the sin that the sinner commits. The Bible teaches us that God loves the sinner and will not cast him off, will not pass him by, and will not throw him out. In fact, the Bible teaches that God so loves the sinner that he is prepared to go to great lengths to cause the sinner to come to God. And I want to share with you just from a few of the scriptures this evening some of the truths that are contained there. For I wonder if we understand what it is that God sees about sin that is so horrific. We commit sin quite glibly, quite carelessly and thoughtlessly. We sometimes just shrug it off as something else we got involved in. Lord, you know I didn't start off today to do this, but here I am. I'm like Dr. Gloucester or Dr. Foster on his way to Gloucester who stepped in a puddle up to his middle. Lord, I'm, I'm in it up to my middle and it's in a shower of rain and we cry out to God and we say, I didn't start out this way. <clears throat> when I started out, it was all clear. I didn't see the potholes. I didn't see the problems I was going to get into. There are days I've shared with the men in the breakfast meetings there are some days when you wish you hadn't got up. Have you noticed that sometimes you'll be driving along the street, a car pulls out in front of you, and you break very graciously, keeping your anger well down, as he crawls out, and he simply goes a quarter of a block down and pulls into somebody else's driveway. He could have waited. There was nothing behind you. There was nothing in front of you. But he got in front. You've no, long, no sooner got rid of him, and somebody pulls right out in front of you. And the next intersection... And they wait until you're halfway across before they pull out. And then somehow they get in front of you, almost taking your bumper. Oh, your heart misses three beats and then gains 48 in two seconds. And you think your heart's in fibrillation or whatever that dreadful thing is, and you're about to die. You're all hot. Your face goes funny with all lots of little prick points and your fingers are tingling. And you wonder, why do they do that for you just about get out of that situation, a truck honks its horn at you, a bus seems to drive over you, a policeman glares at you as you go by, and you wonder if you've got all five wheels working, the four on the, on the floor and the one in your hand. It's difficult, and, and, and you wonder, what happened to me? Why did I bother to get up? And you get to the office or wherever it is you go, and they say, hmm, about time. What do you mean about time? Same time as usual. It's just that they got there a little earlier than you this, this day. About time. And then you start the day. Oh, should have stayed home. Now, sin gets us like that. We don't often intend to be involved in sin. It's like biting your fingernails. You start off sucking your thumb. Then chewing the fingers down each side of your nail... And that gets tasteless after a while, so you go to the nail. If you don't clean your nails for a week or two, they get quite tasty after a while. And I can tell from the giggling, you know all about that. No wonder you have good nutrition. You didn't intend to have nails that were chewed right the way down to the, 
to the moons or half, what do they call that white piece at the bottom there? Yes, they are there. You didn't mean to cause your fingers to be misshapen because you chewed them as a kid. But young people, as you grow older, you may have stopped the habit, but your fingers are bent by the way you chewed your fingers. That's a strange thing, you may say. And I can imagine all over the congregation, people are hiding very surreptitiously beneath their Bibles, their fingers at this point. I think that's why some ladies glue nails on and keep them very long. Apart from the fact that they're like weapons. Ever shaken a hand with a handful of claw? Is that good night, Mrs. Bear? Well, it takes a while. But in fact, the Bible teaches us that sin just creeps up on us. It's something that just happens. And somehow, if we don't stop it, it goes on happening, it misshapens us, it causes us to be people that are sort of robbed of what God intended. You fellows who come home and sit down in a chair and sort of fall out of it in different ways, if you do that regularly, your heart gets very lazy and it doesn't have to work, so it sort of flops around and just by flopping, it makes the blood sort of circulate. Then one day, a child runs out in the road that you're the babysitter, now rather elderly, that's what you're used for, and uh, you're there looking after the child. The child does something, runs out in the street or runs through the house and it shouldn't be running through and you try to grab the child and miss. And you chase the child and that heart's been flopping around, working its way through pounds and pounds of all sorts of adipose tissue or excess blubber. Whatever it's been doing suddenly is called on to act like a heart all over again and so it does and it starts pounding away, but it can't stop once it starts, and it gets going very fast, and you have a heart attack. Now, it didn't start off the day expecting a heart attack, but the first time you sat down when you didn't need to, started the condition in which a heart attack could take your life. So we have to see that sin creeps up on us unawares, takes us by storm in the end, for it cheats us. Let me share with you from the Scripture. Turn with me, if you will, to Genesis 18. And in the 18th uh, chapter, you will discover that sin, as far as God is concerned, is very grievous. In chapter 18, turn to verse 20. God speaks about sin and says it is very grievous, for the Lord had fast closed up the wombs of the house of Abimelech because of Sarah, Abraham's wife. Why had he done this? Why had God gone to the length of closing up the wombs, not allowing women to bear children in the house of Abimelech? Because sin and the sin was that Abraham said, my wife is my sister. And his sister was taken into the harem of Abimelech. And God said, no way will I allow sin to create 
a problem in this man's life. Sin is calculated by God as being very grievous. Sin is a grievous malady. And Abraham was committing sin when he lied. And God had to intervene. It is great and very grievous to be found in sin. From there, we must discover that sin is like an obscuring cloud. The other day as I was driving, I was fascinated by some of the cloud forms. I really meant to take my camera and photograph some of them, but I didn't have time. At least that's my excuse. But I saw one great hand with massive fingers holding like a little world in its grasp. It was just in the midst of a cloud formation. And then off to one side was another hand stretched out. It was a little hand. It reminded me of years before when old Elijah saw the, a cloud the size of a man's hand. He said, it will rain. Sometimes there are clouds that obscure. And the clouds that obscure cause us not to be able to see the stars nor the moon. It causes us not to see the sun. On one occasion I went to visit England. And as we were approaching by air, Ireland, I noticed a great yellow haze over the whole of the British Isles. As the plane plunged down into that haze, rain bespattered the windows and the fuselage. As I got out of the aeroplane, I was dampened by the same rain. And as I went to my house, I was soaked by the same rain. And for three weeks, I was rained upon. I was glad to get in an aeroplane and fly back out out of that yellow haze and discover the rain behind me. And I'm told that this year, it's similar. It's been raining a great deal over the British Isles. Now the cloud obscures the sun. There's a lot of laughter and a lot of fun poked about British summers. If you happen to be in the bathroom, cleaning your teeth, be careful. The summer may go by. You need to keep one eye out of the window, as it were. So the humorists tell us. I didn't say that very well. Or you didn't thought it was humorous too. Thank you. <laughs> But this obscuring cloud is important to see. Look at Isaiah 59 and 2. Your iniquities have separated between you and your God, and your sins have hid His face from you, that He will not hear. This obscuring cloud then has various, does various things. It stops our prayers reaching God. He won't hear. It stops him seeing us because of our sin. And it stops us seeing him because of our stubbornness, or as recorded here in the authorized version, our iniquity. The word iniquity means to stubbornly sin. To know you're wrong, but go on sinning. What is the scripture? It says simply in Isaiah 59 to these words, your iniquities have separated between you and your God, and your sins have hid his face from you. He will not hear. That is God speaking. 
It's an obscuring cloud. It hides the face of God. And it hides His blessing. And it hides our prayers from our God. See, a little lie as a child. And then you go and you kneel beside your bed and you say, God bless mommy, God bless daddy, and God bless the missionaries, and God bless me, and let me wake up a nice fellow in the morning. Amen. And somehow we teach children, you can be naughty and pray and God hears you, but in fact the scripture says, sin obscures like a cloud and stops you from seeing God's face, stops your prayers from an audience with God and stops God smiling upon the person. See, sin becomes more than that. It becomes like a binding cord. You've all been seen cowboys. I love to watch the cowboys. I like to watch the rodeos. I like it when they lasso the um, cows, the calves, and the calves go down. I like it when they jump on the calves. That's, that's great. Especially when a fellow misses. And there he is grabbing a mass of nothing, sliding along on his posterior, and the calf is mooing and making all sorts of noises and tossing his head. I saw one cowboy who missed the other way around. He jumped too late. And the calf hesitated. And he jumped right slap in front of the calf and sat on his head. And he was on the horns of dilemma for a while. But in Proverbs 5.22, it says that sin is a binding cord. You've seen the cowboy throw the calf and with a small cord that he hides in his teeth or somewhere, I think he half swallows it some of the time, he'll tie quickly round the ankles of the four legs and so the calf is tied. So sin keeps man from fulfilling his designed functions, the functions that God wants him to function. The wicked are said to be holden with the cords of sins. Look at this verse in 22 of, of chapter 5. His own iniquities shall take the wicked himself, and he shall be holden with the cords of his sins. Did you know that every sin becomes like a piece of string? It becomes a cord. And every time you sin, that cord somehow ties you tighter to something that binds. If your ankles and wrists are tied to each other, you don't walk upright. If your left wrist is tied to your right ankle and your left ankle to your right wrist, you don't walk easily. In fact, you may even try two or three times to walk a short distance and discover that you're double-minded, therefore very unstable in all your ways. For your hand will want to go in one direction as your foot wants to go in the other. Do you see, being tied makes you rather grotesque. It makes you a person that doesn't easily function as a normal person. You are in fact tied. And ladies and gentlemen, whether we like it or dislike it, sin does this. 
it causes us to be worse than a cripple. Because we're not cripples, we are physically strong, but spiritually ridiculous. And sin didn't seem to tie us very tightly. I was listening to some teenagers tease a young policeman. And they, they were teasing in this way, wise. Do those handcuffs really work? Do they really hold you? And the young policeman wanting to show his prowess and his ability with his equipment was saying, yes, they do. But the boys weren't very up and coming in supplying him with wrists. Eventually, one fellow sort of very carefully put his wrist out and he said, well, see if it fits my wrist. And so the policeman just put the manacles around his wrist but didn't shut them. Oh, the boy said, that's not too bad. Now the young fellow said, let me try. Now he'd been one of the loud mouths. And you could see the twinkle in the young policeman's eye. He put them around him. Oh, yes, he said, that's good. And the policeman took them back. But then the loud mouth, he sort of wasn't going to be left out. And he said, well, try, try them on me. And this time, it was very simple to snap shut the jaws of those manacles. And the young fellow was trapped. Of course, it was a game. Of course, he was gradually led into the place where he offered his wrists. But that's how sin works. First, it's an attraction. Then there is a curiosity. And then there is that, well, let's see if it really works business. I'm too big for sin to tackle me and keep me down. I can't be kept in manacles of sin. This town isn't big enough for me and sin. I'm a Christian. My dear young friend, especially understand sin comes in silk cords. Samson was laying with his head in the lap of a beautiful woman as she braided, it seemed to him, his hair. As she fingered with his hair and as eventually she, she just staked his hair into the ground. And then she said, the Philistines, he leapt up and he just pulled his head. And as he did, the hair stayed in. The pegs came out and he fought the Philistines. It was a game he played. It was a game. How, where is your strength, Samson? Oh, it's, if you get some brand new rope and you tie my wrist with brand new rope, why, I can't really move after that. She tried that and he just broke the rope as if it was old hemp and he threw the ropes away and fought the Philistines. And then, tell me really, she whined. Tell me honestly, she cried. Tell me really and honestly, she begged. Well, you know, I've never had a haircut in my life. She soothed him to sleep, clipped his hair. The Philistine Samson, he thought he could still fight as he'd fought before. But now it cost him his eyes. Now it cost him fetters. Now he was chained like an oxen to grind the corn into flour. Notice something else about sin that is most tragic. If you've been a hunter at any time, you know that 
you watch a wild animal very carefully. You watch it so carefully, especially if it's the cat family, and if it crouches to spring, you quickly either use your weapon or get out of its way. In Genesis 4, 7, we discover that sin is like a crouching beast which waits to spring upon us and tear us apart into destruction. Look at this. God had to remind Cain. He said, Cain, sin crouches at the door. The sin, you murdered Abel, and sin crouches at the door like a beast waiting to spring. If you've ever hunted cougar, or if you've ever tracked cougar, you might track them up into the mountains, amongst the rocks, and as you thread your way through the rocks, you look for anything that looks like an animal. If you see that anything, you freeze and make sure that the anything is either rock or the animal you're chasing, or another animal that has come up. But one thing with a cougar is you're following it and hunting it. You make sure it's in front of you and hasn't circled and come up behind you. If you're tracking bear, you make absolutely sure that the bear hasn't gone in a circle and you're just a few moments behind him, walking perhaps in your own footsteps. Soon you'll discover his tracks upon your tracks and then you have a funny feeling at your back. And you turn around, and if you were to backtrack in the opposite direction immediately, very likely you'd come face to face with that bear. You're safe, so long as he's on all fours and sniffing and snuffling around. But if he stands up and is looking at you, and if he happens to be just a little elevated by a geographical elevation from you, arm yourself or get out of the way. He is a crouching beast, ready to come. A cougar looks pretty in a cage. A cougar is beautiful in a picture. But when that cougar is down on all fours, when his talons are just beginning to come out of his pads, and when he's ready to spring, his legs just like, just like coiled springs waiting to come down upon you, You'd better be armed or have room to get out of his way. Now, sin is like that. And God said to Cain, I want you to understand, sin is crouching at your door. And it crouches in a fashion that it's going to come and do you harm. There is more about sin. It is a rest destroyer. There isn't time to go to every scripture it is a rest destroyer. We read of this in Psalm 38, 3. We discover there is no rest in my bones because of sin. Some of us have all sorts of diseases. Some of us have all sorts of physical ailments and problems, and they are sin-related, and there is no question about it. They came because of sin. It is more than that. Sin, we discover in Jeremiah 5 and verse 25, is a blessing robber. Your iniquities have turned away these things 
and your sins have withholden good from you. Does it seem sometimes that good has been held back and you alone stand by yourself? My dear friend, very likely there is sin in your life, sin that has to be dealt with, for it's a blessing robber. It strips us. It takes away. It starves us. It reduces the nourishment that God would give to our souls. It leaves us naked. It leaves us destitute. It is a blessing robber. If you're into sin, as some people are into drugs, if you're into sin, as some people are into sex, if you're into sin, as some people are into carelessness, if you're into sin, as most people indulge iniquity, my dear friend, you're without God's blessing upon your life. You have been robbed. And what robbed you was this. Not your ability to say, oh God, forgive me. Not your ability to be today a nice person and tomorrow an ugly soul. What robbed you was this. Sin. Now J.C. Ryle says, as he publishes his book and he writes in the foreword of his book, on holiness, he says, I want you to understand that if only mankind could see the sinfulness of sin, I'm just telling you what sin does, that you might somehow focus in in the little microscope that's in your mind and understand your heart for a few moments. How many of you have felt some time or another that your heart was pounding away towards some young man or some young lady? only to find it really wasn't the right thing. And suddenly you feel all defeated and deflated and all of a tis was. In fact, your life has become one great fuffle. You don't know what to do with yourself. And there's a cacophony of noise going on inside your little mind. You want to cry, you want to laugh, you want to be sad, you want to be happy. But nothing really organizes itself in your heart. And that inner person is just a very dissatisfied, undignified, wretched feeling of depressiveness. Oh God, you cry out, what did I do? Well, you saw someone, you thought about someone, and your heart said, if you see and if you think, you might have, and so you went to have, but the banquet wasn't yours. Because God didn't prepare it. And so you discovered all of a sudden the heart above all things is abominably wicked. It is deceitful. And suddenly you discovered you couldn't trust your heart. The reason you couldn't trust your heart was your eyes were looking at flesh. The reason you couldn't trust your heart was your mind was thinking about the things of the world. And so with the lust of the flesh and the, th- and the eyes of pride and the, the longing of the mind seeking the things that were not of God, you sinned. And it robbed you. And you had no blessing. And there was no rest. It consumed you like a crouching beast. It bound you and it obscured like a cloud. 
See, the heart does this. This is why Jesus said, if thou believest with all thine heart, if you'll take that heart that is so deceitful, if you'll take that heart that is so abominably wicked, if you'll take that heart and you'll allow that heart to say, Lord Jesus Christ, I'll trust you. I'll turn my attention to you. I'll turn away from sin and I'll turn to God. If you'll allow your heart to do that, my dear friend, young and old alike, you will have liberty in God and liberty in Christ and liberty in the cross and glorious salvation in your soul. That's the promise of God. You see, sin is a terrible desolator. In Micah 3.13, we discover words that are frightening. I will make thee sick in smiting thee, in making thee desolate, why? Because of thy sins. God spells it out. I will do this to thee. I will smite thee. I will make thee desolate because of sin. God doesn't hang around. He doesn't beat around. See, sin is like a tripper-upper. Young fella fooling around at school. Just about to start the, the summer vacation. Tearing across the classroom or wherever it was floor. And a friend just put his toe out. And the young fella just tipped his toe and zoom he went. Ended with a broken ankle. Spent all summer on crutches. Couldn't work. Couldn't earn money on crutches. Couldn't have fun. Couldn't go hiking on crutches. Couldn't go swimming, had leg in a cast. Miserable summer, miserable summer. Sin is a tripper-upper, if you'll excuse the expression. In Proverbs 13, 6, it simply tells us this, that wickedness overthroweth the sinner. Wickedness trips him up. It is the overthrower of the sinner. The wise man turns away from sin and is not tripped up. But you must understand that sin is also in a written record. Go to Jeremiah 17 for a minute in verse 1 and you'll discover there that God made sure that sin is written down in, indelible, in an indelible way. He doesn't use ink. He uses an a pen of iron, and with the point of a diamond, it is craven upon the heart. A pen of iron, with a point of a diamond, it is craven, it is engraved upon the heart. I love to watch the masons when they're writing a vast and beautiful inscription on a piece of granite. The granite usually is polished and finished and looks so beautiful, and then comes the artist and he has to make his inscription. First he lays down his tracing, then he leaves his impression and then he starts to chisel all the little pieces. He just etches, as it were, his way through the granite. He works and he works so hard. God here says he's going to use an iron pen with a diamond tip to write on the heart What did Jesus say about the heart? 
He said, because of the hardness of your hearts. Is it that hard, Lord? Oh, the Bible says the heart is stony. We should be aware that God is writing in an indelible manner sin and he lets it be craven upon the heart. It cannot be erased until the heart comes to Jesus Christ and the granite stone is melted until the fire of God is on the altar that God provided until we discover that our hearts are consumed in the love of Christ. Then, not only the inscription, but also the stony altar is consumed all in the same vast furnace blast of his love. You see, sin is all kinds of things. If there were time, I would show you It is a betraying presence. Ye have made your iniquities to be remembered in that your transgressions are discovered so that all your sins do appear, said Ezekiel in his prophecy in 21-24. It is an accusing witness which points the accusing finger at the prisoner and judges the prisoner. Isaiah 59-12 tells us Our sins testify against us. How many people say, I cannot come to God. I cannot accept Christ. I cannot receive the love of God because I'm too bad. I'm too far gone. Their sins do testify against them. But last of all, I share with you, sin is a sum of addition which is ever adding to its catalogue of ills. Isaiah 30, verse 1 teaches us this. Woe to the rebellious children that take counsel, but not of me, and that cover with a covering, but not of my spirit, that they may add sin to sin. See, you start off just sucking your thumb, You end up chewing your fingers. Your nails are gone, so the manicurist says, cover them up, cover them up. Stick a false nail on the nail that's missing. Stick a false beauty where there is no beauty. Pretend. And so the child, and so the adult, and so all of us that start off with a small sin create a larger sin by adding a sin to a sin and then our sinful pile of garbage grows larger and larger until we see the heap threatening to come down upon us. Who then shall lift us up out of this horrible pit? Who then shall set our feet upon a solid rock? Who then can put a new song in our mouth? Only Jesus Christ of Nazareth only the Son of God, only the Savior of the world who died and is risen from the dead, only He can deal with sin. The reason He is without sin, tempted every way like you and I have ever been, yet found to be without sin, 
Only Jesus who allowed his body to be broken for us. Only Jesus whose blood was poured out for us. Only Jesus who so loved the world could redeem us. If you look at that fact of sin, where are you with God tonight? Do you need salvation? When you see those facts about sin, do you see yourself somewhere caught? Do you see that sin is its own trap? Will you say, Lord Jesus Christ, I want to be shot and finished with my sin. I want to come to you and receive you and be yours. I reject my sin. Would you do that in this evening hour? Would you recognize the fact of sin in your life and put it to one side? I can't do it for you. Your friend can't do it. The deacon can't do it. Your parents can't. Your children can't. Nobody can do this for you. You must make a conscious catalogue of your sin. And then you must say, Lord, I want to deal with this sin and I want you to deal with it for me because I cannot deal with it adequately. And you'll hear the voice of Jesus say, Come, come unto me and rest. Lay down, lay down, thou weary one, thy head upon my breast. And you'll be able to say, I came to Jesus as I was, guilty, weary, worn and sad. But I have found a resting place and He has made me glad. Let's bow in prayer. Our gracious God, we thank and praise Thy name for all Thy loving kindness, for all Thy tender mercy, for all Thy grace and we ask O oh Lord our God, bless this congregation we beseech thee. We ask it in thy name and for thy sake. Amen.